Thank you so much, worship team. And isn't it good to be able to come together and worship the Lord? We're so blessed to have a tremendous worship team leading us on Sunday mornings. So great to have the technology that we do to bring these uh, services to you in your own homes. We've just been tremendously blessed here at Lakes Free. Much of that blessing comes from the faithfulness of God's people here at Lakes Free. And I just want to thank you for standing with our church through this difficult time. Uh, our church staff has been just tremendously blessed by the abundance of cards and emails and words of support and encouragement that we've received in recent weeks. And so uh, as your pastor, I just want to thank you on behalf of our entire church for uh, just your faithfulness as our people, even in this difficult time. I also want to thank you for standing with us financially during this time. God has been tremendously faithful to our church. There are many churches that are struggling during this difficult season, as are many families in our country today. And uh, and yet God has provided for our needs here at Lakes Free. And much of that is due to your faithfulness in continuing to honor the Lord, worshiping him through your giving to our church. And so again, friends, I just want to thank you for that. I want to remind you this morning that if you'd like to worship the Lord with us through your giving, uh, you can very easily do that by going to the Lakes Free Church website, www.lakesfree.org. Right there on our homepage, we have a very clear giving link that will give you all the instructions that you need if you'd like to continue to join us in worship through the giving of your gifts to the Lord. So we thank you for that, and uh, we're very grateful. I want to invite you to join me now in a word of prayer as we ask God's blessing over our sermon this morning. We're going to be continuing our series in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, looking at Jesus' revelation to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Today we're going to be looking at the second letter that Jesus gave to John to send to these churches in Asia Minor. This letter is written to the church in Smyrna. So would you join me this morning, friends, as we pray and ask God's blessing, asking him to open our eyes to the truth of his word and to apply these truths to our heart together today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, the privilege we have of worshiping you. We thank you for our worship team and just uh, the tremendous music that they provided for us to usher us into your presence to uh, bring into us a heart of worship and to remind us of those great truths of who you are and, and the blessings and the amazing grace that we have in you. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the many ways that you have provided for Lakes Free and taken care of Lakes Free. And Lord, we just give you all the honor, glory, and praise for your faithfulness to us. Lord, I thank you for our friends today, our church family, who, even though we're not gathered together physically, we are one in spirit this morning. We're one in spirit, Lord, because we share the, the hope of salvation that's found in you. We share the joy of the Lord that overflows from a life of the one who has come to know you as the living Savior, our Messiah, our King of Kings. And so, Lord, I just pray for all my friends today, wherever they are, that you would continue to give them that tremendous spirit of joy and encouragement. No matter what they're facing, no matter what fears, no matter what trials they're going through, God, I pray that you would be close to them and remind them today of your amazing love and your never-ending faithfulness. Lord, thank you for always providing for our church. Thank you for the way your people support the ministries of our church, and we just continue to offer ourselves to you as your instrument in this community and in the world. 
We thank you, God, for the privilege that we have as a church of taking the good news of Jesus Christ, not only to the Chisago Lakes area and our surrounding communities, but, but to the, the, through the missionaries and ministries that we support all over the world, Lord. The word of Jesus Christ, the hope of the gospel is going forth. And I thank you for your, your, our friends, your, your faithful partners in this ministry who support the work of the gospel here at Lakes Free. Bless them for that, Lord, and encourage them in their faithfulness to us. And now, Jesus, as we open your word again, as we look at your revelation to the seven churches in Asia Minor, as we look at the testament given to the Apostle John, may your Holy Spirit illuminate these truths for us. May you open our hearts and our minds to hear and receive your word. And may we put into practice the great words of encouragement that you shared 2,000 years ago with the church in Smyrna. Help these truths to be impressed upon our hearts and provide us with the same encouragement that they gave those saints 2,000 years ago. We pray all this today in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, friends, the year was 155 A.D. The man who had been detained and tied up and stood in the midst of the government officials of his day was a pastor from a church in Smyrna, modern-day Turkey. His name was Polycarp, and Polycarp at this time was 86 years old. It was some 60 years after Jesus had delivered his letter to the church in Smyrna through the Apostle John and his revelation that he received while in exile on the island of Patmos. Sixty years had gone by. Polycarp, the pastor of the church in Smyrna, had been arrested. The last living link between the apostles and the modern-day church 2,000 years ago. Polycarp had been arrested. He was facing execution. And the government officials said to Polycarp that all he needed to do was bow down to Caesar and renounce Jesus Christ, and Polycarp could go free. Polycarp replied to these governing officials, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul there for overseeing the trial of Polycarp gave Polycarp one more opportunity to recant his faith in Jesus Christ. He said, Polycarp, if, if you'll just offer incense, a sacrifice of incense to Caesar, re- renounce this silly faith, Polycarp, and, and you can be free of the threat of the wild beasts. You can be free of the threat of the flames. And once again, Polycarp declared, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. And then Polycarp added, but why do you delay? Come, do as you wish. Come, do as you wish. What a powerful testament of faith, friends. What an incredible testimony from this godly saint who was willing to lay it all down for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
Church tradition tells us that after Polycarp made his bold confession, he was tied in the middle of the arena. And the Roman soldiers gathered wood and built a, a pyre around Polycarp. And Polycarp was burned alive in front of cheering crowds. Tradition says that as Polycarp's body was engulfed in flames, his body shone brilliantly like gold being refined in the fire. Tradition tells us that there was a fragrant aroma that filled the stadium, uh, a fragrance like flowers as Polycarp bravely went home to be with the Lord. People watching marveled at what they saw. Psalm 116 verse 15 tells us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And certainly this brave hero of the faith received a welcome home from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. What a testament. What a model for you and I, friends, as we think about what it means to serve the Lord faithfully, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, why do I open this morning with this story of Polycarp? Well, friends, today, as we continue our series in Revelations chapter 1 through 3, Jesus's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, we're going to be looking at Jesus's letter to the church in Smyrna, a city that was roughly 30 miles north of Ephesus, the, the city that we looked at last week. And this city, Smyrna, was the city that housed the church that Polycarp pastored. In fact, there's very strong evidence that Polycarp may very well have been the pastor of the church in Smyrna at the time of John's revelation from Jesus Christ sent to the seven churches at the end of the first century. Polycarp would have been around 30 years old at this time. We know that Polycarp had been a disciple of the Apostle John. We know that Polycarp had been ordained the, the bishop of the church in Smyrna by the Apostles John and Philip. And so there at the end of the first century, 95 AD, Polycarp as a young man was for sure a member of this church in Smyrna, if not at that time, their pastor. What an incredible thing. To think that the, the angel of the church in Smyrna that Jesus addresses this letter to, the angel in the Greek, angelos, messenger, the messenger, the, the leader, the pastor of the church in Smyrna very well may have been this great hero of the faith, Polycarp, who received this word of encouragement from Jesus Christ. 95 AD, Smyrna was a church at risk. Smyrna was a church facing unique trials and, and persecutions. The city of Smyrna at this time, as I mentioned, 30 miles north of Ephesus, the city we looked at last week, Smyrna was known as the crown of Asia. It, it, it was a beautiful city surrounded by a, a ring of mountains. It was a great place to live, a, a thriving economy, a, a beautiful location. But for the Christians in Smyrna, it was a very difficult place to live. You see, Smyrna was the center of the Roman imperial cult in Asia. They had temples there in Smyrna dedicated to the emperors of Asia, or the emperors of the Roman Empire. And once a year, all the people of Smyrna were required to go to these temples and offer a sacrifice to the emperors, showing their loyalty to the emperors of Rome. 
Not only did this imperial cult flourish there in Smyrna, but there was also a large Jewish population there in Smyrna. The Jews who from the very beginning of the church had been persecutors of the Christian faith. And so this was a very difficult setting for these Christians to find themselves in. But it's very interesting as we read the letter to the church in Smyrna. Unlike the church in Ephesus, Smyrna receives no critique or word of condemnation from Jesus. You see, friends, this was a faithful church. This was a healthy church. This was a church thriving in faithfulness as they sought to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in this very difficult environment. And so while Jesus doesn't offer a critique to the church in Smyrna, what we're going to see today is that he does provide them with a powerful word of encouragement, a word of exhortation, a needed message in this time of trial and persecution that they found themselves in at the end of the first century. See, friends, the reality of trials and persecution and tribulation for those who follow Jesus Christ that this was a common theme in Jesus' ministry. He warned his followers that persecution was coming. And now here, 95 AD, 60 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, Jesus once again provides a word of encouragement to his people in Smyrna facing trials and persecution. During Jesus' ministry and Passages like John 16, 33, Jesus had warned his followers that in this world, you will have trouble. Friends, trouble, trials, persecution is not a foreign experience to God's people. It hasn't been from the very beginning. Jesus warned us in this world, you will have trouble. What would this trouble look like? Well, in other passages like Matthew 10, 16 through 22, Jesus elaborates on the trouble his followers could expect in this world. Jesus said, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Friends, Jesus told his followers that he was sending them into a world of trial and persecution. He was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And certainly over the past 2,000 years, the church has experienced the truth of these warnings of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reality of persecution is something the church has faced from the very beginning. In fact, just this week, I was reading a, a message from Open Doors USA, a ministry that works with the persecuted church around the world today. Open Doors USA reports that in the past four months alone of the year 2020, in the past four months alone around the world, 3,000 of our brothers and sisters in Christ have been martyred for their faith. 4,000 of our brothers and sisters in Christ have been detained and imprisoned without trial because of their faith in Jesus Christ. In the past four months alone, over 9,500 church buildings have been burned or destroyed 
by those who hate the name of Jesus. And today, friends, there are over 260 million Christians who live in areas around the world facing severe persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, we're privileged here in the United States. We're privileged to live in a place where most of us will never have to face the decision of whether or not we're willing to die for our faith in Jesus Christ. But you know something, friends, I'll tell you this morning, you will have to decide each and every day if you're willing to live for your faith in Jesus Christ. Are you willing to count the cost of following Jesus Christ? Are you willing to count the cost in the school lunchroom when your friends are ridiculing you for attending church and youth group? Are you willing to count the cost of following Jesus in the break room at your workplace when people are ridiculing you as being intolerant or narrow-minded or bigoted for holding fast to the truths of God's word? Are you willing to count the cost when your friends ostracize you because you're no longer willing to go along with the crowd, instead pursuing faithfulness to Jesus Christ? Are you willing to count the cost, friends? In Matthew 10, 34 through 39, Jesus talks about the cost that comes with following him. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, Jesus made very clear from the very beginning that following him would be costly. You see, the way of Christ is called the narrow road for a reason. If it was an easy path, it would be the broad road. But it's called the narrow road because it's a road of suffering, a road of trials and persecution and hardship. And we have to ask the question, are we willing to count the cost, whatever it may be, of following Jesus Christ? Now this morning, friends, we're going to consider one of the greatest risks facing the church for the past 2,000 years. It was the risk facing the church in Smyrna in 95 AD, and it's the risk facing countless believers even still today. And from what I've shared so far this morning, you might think that risk is persecution, but it's not. It's not. What is that risk? It's the risk of losing heart in the face of persecution. It's the risk of giving into fear instead of walking by faith. It's the risk of doubting God's providence instead of hanging on to his promises. It's the risk of looking at the trial instead of embracing the test. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Friends, Brothers and sisters, please understand this morning, tribulation in this world is a given 
for followers of Jesus Christ. But what's not given, though, is our response to tribulation. And so this morning, we're going to explore a question that is essential to living a life of faith and faithfulness in Jesus Christ. How do we avoid losing heart? In other words, how can we stand firm in a world where persecution is the inevitable reality for a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, friends, the good news is that in his letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus provides us with an answer. He provides us with an answer for how we can stand firm. Let's take a look at our passage this morning. It's a short passage, a short letter to the church in Smyrna. It's found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's a very short letter that Jesus writes to the church in Smyrna. But here, Jesus provides them with a much-needed word of encouragement. Here, Jesus gives us instructions on how we, too, can avoid losing heart no matter what trials, tribulations, or persecutions we might face. Jesus gives us three keys in this passage to avoid losing heart in the midst of tribulation. Jesus reminds us here in this passage, number one, that we have a sovereign Savior. We have a sovereign Savior. In verse 8, Jesus declares, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus opens his letter to the church in Smyrna, reminding them of who is writing to them. Reminding them of who is speaking to them. The first and the last, the one who died and came to life, our sovereign Savior. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. The words there in the Greek are protos and eschatos. Jesus says, I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the first and the last. I am sovereign over all creation. There was none before me. There will be none after me. Jesus rules and reigns over all creation. The first time we see this description of the Lord is in the Old Testament. In the prophet Isaiah, chapters 46 and 48. In Isaiah 48, verses 12 through 13, for example, we find the Lord use these very terms for himself, the first and the last. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I, call, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand forth together. Jesus declares here 
the Lord declares here, I am the first and the last. I am ruling and reigning over all creation. This is the designation that Jesus took for himself, declaring himself to be the God of the universe, the first, <coughs> the first and the last. We see that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all of history. And friends, this persecuted church in Smyrna needed to be reminded of that great truth, that nothing happens outside of God's oversight and providential care. He is sovereign over all of history. In Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, we read, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Jesus says that he sovereignly orchestrates all of history, that not one of his purposes will fail to come to pass because he is the sovereign Lord over all. We see this message throughout the Bible over and over again. Passages like Ephesians 1.11, which declares the Lord works all things according to the counsel of his will. Passages like Acts 17, 24 through 31, where we find that Jesus is not only the creator of all things, but he appoints the very times and places in which we live. Psalm 139, 16 tells us that all of our days were recorded in God's book before any one of them came to be. Friends, God knew all the days of your lives. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us that the Lord knows the plans he has for us. Plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans to give us a hope for the future. How can he know those plans? Because he is sovereign, orchestrating all of history. Romans 8, 28 tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things. Now, friends, what does all this mean for the follower of Jesus Christ? What, what does all this mean for the believer facing times of trial and persecution and hardship? Well, what this means, friends, is that we can be confident that absolutely nothing enters our lives that isn't first father filtered. You see, God sees the end from the beginning. He knows the plans he has for us and he accomplishes all of his purposes. And we can be sure that the God who loved us enough to die for us is wise enough to know the best course of life for us. Friends, we can trust that God is sovereign over all of history. This was his message to the church in Smyrna facing persecution. But not only does he tell them that he's sovereign over all of history, he also reminds them that he is the sovereign Lord who has conquered death. The sovereign Lord who conquered the grave. Friends, this has been a hope that has buoyed Christians for over 2,000 years. Like that great hymn declares, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Friends, this is the hope of the follower of Jesus Christ. We have a sovereign Lord who rules and reigns over the grave. 
The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21, facing very likely his own death, declared that for me to live is Christ and to die, to die is gain. How was death gain for the Apostle Paul? Death was gain because he knew the promise of his Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was sovereign over the grave. Jesus declared in John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks. Friends, this was the truth that Paul held on to. This was the truth that God gave Paul the courage to declare that to live is Christ and to die is gain because Paul knew that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. Paul was so confident in the resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ that he was even able to taunt death in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55. Paul declares, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul knew that for the believer in Jesus Christ, we don't face the sting of death. Death has no victory over us. We have the victory because our Lord Jesus Christ conquered the grave. Jesus declares, I am the first and the last. I am the one who died and came to life. And friends, take courage in the reality that we have a sovereign Savior. We need not fear the grave. Five years ago, at the height of ISIS's reign of terror, the world was shocked by the news of 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt who had been kidnapped and executed by ISIS in Libya. But what shocked the world as they watched the news footage of these 21 Coptic Christians being marched down the beach to face beheading, what shocked the world and what the world marveled at was the courage of these faithful brothers in Christ. See, these faithful brothers in Christ did not cower in fear. They did not cry and beg and plead for their lives. Instead, they knelt quietly before their captors, peacefully praying in prayer. How could they do this? How could they have that kind of courage? It's because they kept their eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who says, I am the first and the last, the one who declares, I died. But now I live forevermore. Friends, Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all. He rules and reigns over all of history. He rules and reigns over the grave. And we can take courage in that promise when we face trials, tribulations, hardships, and persecution. The second reminder Jesus gives the church in Smyrna how we can avoid losing heart in the face of our trials and hardships and persecutions. Jesus reminds the church in spirit number two that we have riches in our Redeemer. In verse 9, he declares, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Here, Jesus acknowledges to the church in Smyrna. He recognizes the hardships they were under, the tribulation they were facing, the poverty they were experiencing, the slander that was being brought against them. 
Friends, this was a church enduring economic, physical, religious, and social opposition. These were Christians who would have been marked and and labeled, ostracized for their belief in Jesus Christ. These were brothers and sisters in Christ who were subject to economic boycott, to social injustice, to, to personal insult. Every single day for these believers was filled with challenges and hardships that stemmed from their choice to follow Jesus. Friends, the situation for the church in Smyrna was not unlike that facing many Christians in our world today. Christians living in, in the midst of Muslim cultures, for example, facing severe trial, hardship, persecution, economic, social, political. These realities are still very present in our world today. And, and for the church in Smyrna at the turn of the first century, Jesus makes clear to us that the primary source of their persecution in this day and age were the Jews of Smyrna. It was the Jews who were causing much of their trouble. From the very beginning of the church, the Jews we see all the way back in the book of Acts had orchestrated opposition to the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. The word synagogue in the Greek is synagogi. It, it means an assembly or a congregation. And in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel would meet together, they called themselves an assembly of the Lord. And this word later changed to, to the term synagogue, an assembly, a congregation. But you see, in Smyrna, the Jews were no longer an assembly of the Lord. They had become a synagogue or an assembly of Satan. Now we think these are harsh terms. Man, this is harsh language to use. But Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, used the very same terminology. In passages like John 8, 42 through 47, Jesus declared to the Jews opposing him and his ministry that they belong to their father, the devil. He says, the reason you don't know me is because you don't truly know your father in heaven. Rather, you belong to your father, the devil. Now, friends, it's important to understand that throughout history, many people have looked at passages like these and used them as a reason to persecute the Jewish people. But friends, understand this this morning, anti-Semitism and intolerance towards Jewish people has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus writes these words to the church in Smyrna, the truth of the matter was not that the Jews were the enemy of the church. The reality of the matter was the Jews persecuting the church were actually victims of the enemy. They were victims of our true enemy, the one who is behind all persecution of the church. First Peter 5.8 tells us that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Friends, it is the devil who's responsible for all the persecution of the church throughout history. And the devil will use any means he can, religious means, political means, the media, society, even friends and family. You see, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that the God of this age, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the devil will use any means to bring opposition against God's people. Here in Smyrna, 95 AD, 
He was using the Jews, a synagogue of Satan. Not true Jews because they didn't follow the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were a synagogue of Satan persecuting the church. But Jesus here has good news for the church in Smyrna. Jesus reminds the church in Smyrna here in verse 9 that in spite of all the challenges they were facing, they were a people rich in him. Jesus declares, but you are rich. How could they be rich? They were rich in spite of their trials because they had riches in their Redeemer. They had the assurance of salvation. They had the promise of everlasting life and eternal riches in the kingdom of God. Jesus declares, you are rich. In James 2, 5, we read that believers are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. See, friends, even in this world, when you have nothing, the reality is you have everything because of Jesus Christ. I'll never forget one of the, the great stories my dad used to tell. My dad, who was a pastor and Christian apologist for over 30 years, back in the early 1970s, my dad and grandfather were two of the very first Christians to go into communist China after Cho Lai and Richard Nixon opened the country to the West for the first time in over 20 years. My dad and grandpa had gone to China to, to minister to underground house church leaders there who had faced tremendous persecution in the face of the cultural revolution of Mao Zedong. Before leaving for China, my dad met with a friend of his from college who was Chinese. His parents lived in Shanghai. My dad's friend asked them if they would try to deliver a Bible to his parents there in China. They hadn't had a Bible in over 20 years. My dad and my grandpa visiting Shanghai, China, one day went and sought out these parents of my father's friend. The man who was once a nuclear physicist in one of the major universities there in China had been told he needed to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ or risk losing everything. He refused to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. The communists stripped him of his position in the university. They took all of his books and burned them. They removed he and his wife from their privileged home there in China, and they sent them to a slum in Shanghai to live in a rundown, ramshackle, one-room apartment. My dad and grandpa were able to find these faithful saints. Upon visiting them, they presented them with this Chinese Bible that they had smuggled into the country. These two dear brothers and sisters in Christ wept tears of joy as they held God's word in their hand for the first time in over 20 years. These two saints shared with my dad and grandpa. They said, Ron, would you, would you like to see how the Lord has blessed us and sustained us over these many years? They went over to the corner of their one-bedroom apartment, and they opened a trunk, and buried underneath a pile of clothes and blankets, they pulled out an old, beat-up, tattered English hymnal. Half of its pages had been torn out and missing. And they said to my dad, Ron, every evening for the past 20 years, we've thumbed through this hymnal and read a hymn. It's been the only source of spiritual nourishment we've had. They said, Ron, would you like to hear some of our favorite hymns? They turned the pages and read, I surrender all, all to him I owe. 
They turned through the pages further and read, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Friends, these dear saints had nothing in the eyes of this world. But because they had Jesus Christ, they were rich in their Redeemer. They rejoiced in the joy that is found in Jesus Christ, no matter their trials or persecution. Friends, take heart. Look to Jesus. Know that we have riches in our Redeemer. The third word of encouragement here as Jesus wraps up his message to the church in Smyrna, he reminds them, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Why? Because we have a crown as a result of Christ. We have a crown because of Christ. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I find it very interesting here. Jesus prophesies to the church in Smyrna, you're going to face tribulation. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be sent even to your deaths. And yet Jesus doesn't tell them to resist. He doesn't tell them to rebel. He doesn't tell them to start a revolution. He tells them, remain faithful unto death. And you will receive the crown of life. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, run the race, pursue faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Stand fast in your faith and you will receive the crown of life. The word crown here in the Greek is the word Stephanos. It refers to a victor's crown. In the ancient world, it was a laurel wreath and it was the highest symbol of a champion, a symbol of status and achievement that one could attain in the ancient world. It was a symbol of victory. It was a coveted prize. And Jesus says, stand fast in the face of trial and persecution, and you too will receive the victor's crown. Jesus' brother James in James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who stands steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Friends, why do we hold fast? Why do we stand firm? Why can we not lose heart in the face of persecution and trials? It's because when we pursue Jesus faithfully, we will receive the crown of life. This is our hope as Christians, friends. We don't lose heart. We keep our eyes on the prize. The Apostle Paul was one of those who kept his eyes on the prize. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul talked about his own pressing on in faith in pursuit of the prize. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the challenge for us as Christians. No matter what trials, persecutions, or tribulations we might face, we press on in faith 
in pursuit of the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, in the pursuit of the goal of the victor's crown, the prize, the crown of life that Jesus promises to all who are faithful. That is our hope. That is why we don't lose heart, because Jesus promises a crown to those who pursue him faithfully. Someone who held on to the promise of the crown of life, one of the great heroes of the faith in the 20th century. Not only a great hero of the faith, but one of the great athletes of the 20th century was a man by the name of Eric Little. Eric Little was one of the greatest Olympic champions ever. In 1924, Eric Little, in the Olympic qualifying race, began the race for the 100-meter dash and literally fell in the middle of the race, but he was such an incredible athlete that he got up, ran with all his heart, and ended up finishing the race in first place. He qualified for the 1924 Olympics, but unfortunately Little discovered that his meet, his competition, the 100-meter dash, was going to be held on a Sunday. Little, you see, was a devout Christian, a faithful follower of Jesus. And for Little, he, in his heart, could not compete on the Lord's Day on Sunday. He had made a vow to keep the Lord's Day sacred, to honor the Lord on that day that we celebrate Christ's resurrection from the grave. And so Little refused to run in the Olympics in the 100-meter dash. Little was ostracized by the British public. He was ridiculed in the media. He was mocked for his silly faith, giving up the chance of an Olympic gold medal in order to follow Jesus Christ. But Little stood firm, pressing on in faith, because his eyes were on the ultimate prize, the crown of life. Little, later in the Olympics, was able to compete in the 400-meter dash. While it wasn't his regular event, God honored Eric Little for his faithfulness. Eric Little ran that race with all his heart and ended up not only winning the gold medal in the 400-meter dash, but setting a new world record. He ran for Jesus Christ. After the Olympics in 1924, Eric Little kept running. He kept running, pursuing the crown of life, going to China, his lifelong dream to serve as a missionary in China where he ministered to the least of these and shared the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He kept on running. In 1940, when the Japanese were threatening all of China, having occupied that nation during World War II, many of the British citizens living in China had fled the country. But Eric Little kept running in pursuit of the crown of life. He stayed in China in spite of the threats of the Japanese occupation. He kept serving the people of China in the name of Jesus. Eric Little was eventually detained by the Japanese. He was thrown into a Japanese prisoner of war camp where he spent the last two years of his life. Eric Little would die in that prisoner of war camp. He died of a brain tumor as a result of a lack of proper medical treatment there as a prisoner of the Japanese. I'll tell you something, friends. Cancer may have killed Eric Little. But the reality is he died running. He died running in pursuit of the crown of life promised by Jesus to all who live faithfully for him. You know, what better epitaph could any of us hope for? But for our tombs to declare, he died running. He died running. Are you running for the crown of life today, friends? 
Are you living with your eyes on the prize? Is that your hope in spite of all persecution, hardship, and trial? Shortly before his death, Eric Little, in one of his last sermons, declared the following. He says, many of us are missing something in life because we are after the second best. I put before you what I have found to be the best, one who is worthy of all our devotion, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Friends, we can look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter the challenges, trials, tribulations, or persecution we might face. In this world, we will have trouble, but don't lose heart. Don't lose heart because we have a sovereign Savior. We have riches in our Redeemer. We have a crown because of Christ. Look to Jesus. He's our hope. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of encouragement that you gave your church in Smyrna 2,000 years ago for their encouragement in the midst of persecution and trial, words that still encourage us today. I pray, God, that we would take these words and apply them to our own lives, that we would press on in faith with our eyes always on the prize, looking to you, our sovereign Savior and Lord, our basis of hope, looking to the riches we have in you and our salvation through Jesus Christ, racing for the crown of life promised to all who stand fast in faithfulness, pursuing you no matter the cost. God, give us the faith of those great saints who have gone before us, no matter what hardships or trials we have to go through. God, help us live faithfully for you. And Lord, today we also remember our brothers and sisters around the world living in far more difficult circumstances than we face today. Lord, encourage them with the promises of your word. Help them see the riches that they have in you. Help them to look to you as their source of hope and security. And may they too find their joy in Jesus. We thank you, God, for your goodness and faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.